Um, we're going to start a series called Alien Residence. If you haven't noticed, um, or if you've been under a blanket for the last few months, there are a number of things going on in broader culture that people are talking about uh, that have captured the nation's attention and caused us to ask some questions of what God is doing in the world that seems to be spiraling out of control, both with social issues, with racial injustice, political saga. Years ago, uh, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said there is not one square inch in all of the world in which the sovereign Lord has not declared mine. His point being that God, a God who is sovereign overall, has something to say and speak to every issue that we would confront in our culture. Peter alludes to this reality, this tension that we face as believers when he exhorts us to be aliens and strangers in the world in which we live. So we've got this kind of oxymoronic pairing. We're aliens, but we're residents in this world. And we've got to face that tension that we have to live out a Christian worldview in the face of um, a world that is antithetical to that in many ways. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever we do, speaking specifically about our choices to eat food that's sacrificed to idols, but he kind of summarizes this by saying, whatever you do, you're to do it all to the glory of God. So what we're going to do for about three months is ask a question. How do we do certain things that may not be typically placed in the religious bucket to the glory of God? How do we think about God's glory in light of a host of issues that we are going to confront? So just to whet your appetite for uh, those topics, uh, here's where we'll go. Uh, on January 11th, we're going to ask the question, how, can we, how are we to be aliens to the glory of God? January 18th, how to be narrow-minded to the glory of God. January 25th, how to dance to the glory of God. February 1st, how to eat hot wings to the glory of God. February 8th, how to read Fox News to the glory of God. February 25th, or maybe whether you should read Fox News, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, February, uh, 15th, how to open an IRA to the glory of God. February 22nd, how to have sex to the glory of God. March 1st, how to be approved to the glory of God. And there we're going to discuss sexual sins, particularly homosexuality. March 8th, how to be a feminist to the glory of God. March 15th, how to be a plumber to the glory of God. And March 25th, how to watch the voice to the glory of God. <clears throat> With each of those topics, my attempt is going to be um, to not simply take popular view, self-help strategies, but to apply the authoritative teaching of God's Word to these cultural issues to help us think deeply about how the truths of the Scriptures relate to the rub of life every single day. And I'll be honest, I'm uh, four, I guess four and a half years into my pastoral ministry. Why not do this earlier? We have basically been teaching in book studies um, since I started preaching uh, at Renewal four and a half years ago. Honestly, um, I did not feel like I had the age or maturity to speak on these topics well. 
And the last thing I wanted to do was be a young pastor that spoke on issues that I did not have the intelligence, the scriptural backing, or where I would appear just trite and unhelpful. I think if we're going to address these issues, we need to address them carefully and well. And secondly, we just had not been around as a church long enough to speak to these issues and have the the buy-in culturally that I feel like we have now. So this is going to be a journey for us all to address uh, very critical, contextual issues in our culture with the authority of God's Word while making specific practical application uh, for your lives. And I look forward uh, to the journey uh, that we'll embark on leading up to Easter. With that in mind, uh, let's pray, then we'll turn our attention to Mark's Gospel. God, we are uh, delighted this morning for the hope that Christmas brings, for the excitement that comes uh, as we uh, look forward to this week, to uh, gathering with friends and family, and uh, perhaps playing with children, celebrating some time uh, off work and just out of the norm. Uh, We know that it is uh, quite easy for our gaze to shift to those things and to uh, forget uh, the reality that this week embodies, the fact that you uh, perfectly executed your mission to send your son, to substitute on the behalf of fallen sinners to satisfy God's wrath, to give them the gift of the finished righteousness that Christ earned. We pray that uh, your word this morning would be helpful to us, to directing our attention to uh, your great purposes and plans, that you would capture our hearts and our affections with the scriptures this morning, and that you would spur us to a week that really treasures Christ, and in turn a life that, that does so. We ask for his sake. Amen. Concluding uh, Mark's gospel is quite challenging uh, for a number of reasons, as you'll see shortly. Number one, uh, as we've been, I guess, 52-some-odd weeks in Mark's gospel, the reality is that the book ends quite quickly. I know it doesn't feel that to you. We've been here a while. But in comparison to the other gospels, this is the shortest, most concise of all the Gospels. You've certainly picked up on that as we've journeyed through. The stories uh, don't have a lot of meat on the bones. They're quite concise, quick, and then Mark bounces to the next topic. The book also ends um, quite controversially. Uh, If you notice, uh, scan in your Bibles to chapter 16, uh, verse 8. Most of your manuscripts after verse 8 are going to include some type of parenthetical reference, or uh, perhaps there'll be a little footnote reference to you to the bottom of your page. That's because the ending of Mark is quite controversial. Most of the early and most reliable Greek manuscripts, the original Greek manuscripts, stop at verse 8. They don't include verses 9 through 20. By the, even as late as the third century, really well-known and well-written men like Clement of Alexandria and Origen show no knowledge of the existence of these latter verses. And even the manuscripts that do really alternate in which of those verses and how they include those verses. They have various links and alternate endings after verse 8. And the language and style in the gospel shifts dramatically when you hit verses 9 through verse 20. Most think, most 
conservative scholars now believe that verses 9 through 20 are a later addition uh, by a scribe, perhaps to provide an ending similar to what we find in Matthew and Luke's gospel because of the way that Mark just breaks off with the word because, in fact, just kind of ends his gospel. Uh, many, believe, many believe that scribes or later copyists added in, attempted to supplement so that we see something similar to what we see in Matthew and Luke's gospel with post-resurrection appearances and the like. Well, the question would be, doesn't that mess up the truthfulness of the Bible, Matt? Like, we've got some verses in here that aren't around in the original manuscripts. I would answer no um, for a couple of reasons. One, these issues are very, very rare in the English versions of the Bible that you have, where we have highly contested verses, whether or not they were around in the original manuscript or not. The vast majority of the New Testament scripture, we have existing manuscripts that date very early and are universally attested. These issues are very rare, uh, the, the main ones being this, the ending, and the woman caught in adultery story that's told in John's gospel. Those are the two that are, that are uh, most, the, the biggest stories that are contested. And secondly, no major doctrine is questioned in these texts. So we don't have these texts teaching something that's out of balance or not found in other places in John's gospel. Because most scholars would end Mark's gospel at Mark 8, that's what we're going to do this morning. Attempt to focus our attention on the uncontested part of the scriptures, ending where most believe that Mark ends. And if we do so, this is the third reason that Mark's gospel ending it is quite challenging, is that it ends so abruptly. I mean, Mark just cuts off and doesn't give us much more content to follow. And I hope by the end of this morning's sermon you'll see uh, why I believe that is the case. So let's begin reading in verse 42. When the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned that the from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tube that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone over the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not risen, or he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want you, for a moment, to imagine that you were back in fifth grade. For some of you, this is going to take a lot of imagining. 
Imagine that you were back in fifth grade and your English teacher, in an effort to teach you how to write a crisp and clear five-paragraph essay, gave you the assignment to make up a story, fictitious story, of a make-believe hero. Introduce the hero, provide three compelling scenes from his life, and provide an ending that's going to captivate your audience with this individual's hero-ness. How would you craft that story? What would be the defining marks of someone that would leap off the page to your listeners as, that guy is a hero? I'd guarantee you there are a few things that you would not likely include. First, the hero dying a cruel and embarrassing death. Stripped naked, as Toby showed us last week, beaten to the point of death, hung on a cross, and killed for all to see, in spite of the fact that he did nothing to deserve this. We have in the scriptures clear substantiation of the fact that he really did die. Notice uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, some of these verses will be on the screen. In verses 3 through 5, in one of these early summaries of the gospel message, this is one of the rare places in the scriptures where one of the authors says, this is the message of the gospel. Paul writes, For I delivered to you first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Now, notice that summary statement, that he died according to the scriptures, that he was resurrected, and that he appeared. Those typically flow off our tongues quite readily when we speak of the message of the gospel. But notice that Paul includes the fact that he really did die, that he was dead, and that that deadness was substantiated by the fact that he was buried. Some believe that what we have here is the women going to the wrong tomb and mistakenly believing that Jesus had been resurrected, or him just faking it. Rather, what we have throughout the Gospels is Joseph, Pilate, the centurion, the woman, all saying this is clearly Jesus, and this is clearly a Jesus that died. And these are those that have stake in the game. They have skin in the game. Many in fact, have skin in the fact that he would not resurrect, and they don't counter this claim. So the hero actually dies, his death substantiated by burial. Secondly, a fact that I don't think you would include in your story would be that every one of the hero's followers is going to abandon him, many of them making a fool of themselves in the process. You typically note a hero by the people that are gathered around him. And here we have the hero of our story being stunningly alone at the climax of the Gospels. And thirdly, those that are left after his death, as Mark would record, is some random Jewish leader that we haven't heard of up to this point, and a few women. Joseph, who we meet in verse 42 through 47, we're told that 
He is a member of the council, most likely one of the localized councils, not the larger council that actually condemned Jesus to death. But this localized religious leader, we're told in other gospels that he's quite wealthy. Matthew 27, 37, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So this random, unknown disciple comes and does something that's quite bold. He asks for the body of the crucified. This is not typically the way that you would deal with the body of one who's crucified, specifically someone who's crucified for treason or blasphemy. Typically, you just leave them to hang and rot on the cross where their body can be eaten by birds to publicly shame them and teach a lesson to everyone else around. But this was seemingly an act of pity. He's released to a non-family member. And this may give us indication that Pilate knew something about Jesus' innocence. See, lets the body go. Joseph goes and asks for the body on Friday night so as not to profane the Sabbath day. And we're told in John 19, 39 that he goes with another one that we're somewhat familiar with, with Nicodemus. In verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So these two come and they make a bold and risky action to be associated with one who has been condemned. And we're told, notice in the scriptures, that Joseph somehow connects Jesus with the coming of the kingdom of God. Verse 43, he was also looking for the kingdom of God, and this seemingly is what prompted him to take courage and go and ask for the body. They take the body and wrap him in a shroud and place him in a tomb, and in a scene dripping with irony, the one who is going to come to right the effects that sin brought in the garden, John 19, 41 and 42 tells us, that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The Messiah, the one who would right the effects of the fall in the garden, is placed in a garden, in a tomb, by two seemingly minor characters. And then three women. Right? This is certainly not the people that you include in the story. In the first century, women were not the people that you wanted witnessing things. Their witness was not even supported in the court of law. And we're told that they do a seemingly strange act, probably more than likely purchasing the spices on Saturday night so as to go and anoint a body that by that point has been dead for over a day and a half. Now, you imagine in a hot climate where decomposition would have been quite quick, this is a seemingly strange act, right? We're also told in chapter 15 that Jesus' body has already been anointed. Did they know this? Was this the sign of blindness by love, their desire to go and anoint the body? We're even told that on the way, they ask a seemingly obvious question. Hey, there's a big stone going to be in the way. Who's going to remove that for us? 
Certainly, we see no sign that these women with storied past anticipate a resurrection. But they get there, and the stone is rolled away, a passive action, demonstrating the divine work of God. The stone is moved away. Not to give them access to anoint the body, but to demonstrate he's not there anymore. And then they are told to go and tell these half-hearted, faithless disciples that he would come and do exactly what he told them. This picture of forgiveness and restoration that would be granted them, he would accomplish his purposes in spite of them. And note how Mark ends. He ends the gospel with fear. He ends the gospel with fear. This is the same word or the same idea that if you've been with us throughout this year, you've seen him use over and over and over again. Just a few examples of this. Remember back, Mark 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. This word astonishment, this fear, in each of these cases that I'll mention, we see the same word used or a close synonym of the word that Mark is going to use to, distri- to describe the response of those after his resurrection. In Mark 1:27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus casts out demons, and what happens? The people are amazed. In the healing of the paralytic story, in uh, Mark 2, verse 12, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Mark 4, verse 40, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is even this, that the wind and the sea obey him? You remember that scene after the calming of the storm? They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had a legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And what was the response? They're all afraid. Jesus walking on the water in Mark 6. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, as I do not be afraid. They were on the road, Mark 10, verse 32, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were all amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what would happen to them. This is on the heels of Jesus disclosing to them that he would be crucified, buried, and resurrected. In his teaching on rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, in Mark 12, 17, and Jesus said to them, Remember to uh, render to Caesar's, Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And what did they do? They all marveled at him. Even in his testimony to Pilate, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Throughout Mark's gospel, from front to back, we have Jesus, the Son of God, put on display, and when he is put on display, the response of the people is amazement. Thus, a quite fitting conclusion to Mark's gospel. But, I'll be honest, if this is a movie, I'm standing and booing at the end. 
right? I, I don't like this ending at all. We've said all along that Mark is going to introduce us to the reality that the kingdom is going to come, that the kingdom is coming, the person and work of Christ, that God is making all things right. Everything that sin distorted in the garden, he is making new through the person and work of Christ. He is executing a plan that would free the world from sin and from all its evil effects. And throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen some glimmers of the hope that this kingdom would come. Jesus has preached about the kingdom. He has healed a seeming foretaste of the kingdom. This Roman centurion's faith that Toby showed us last week in the kingdom. And in, at the end of Mark's gospel, this hope of the resurrection, this somewhat cryptic scene that the ladies go to the tomb and he's not there. But the end of the book is far from complete. This is one of these movies that you see the credits scroll and you say, they're going to make another one of these. <laughs> right? I can already anticipate there's going to have to be a second one of these because the kingdom has come, but in many ways the kingdom is coming. The resurrection is marked by very similar images as they're seen at the birth of, the birth of Christ. Remember in Luke 2, a story that you'll probably read this week. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. It's the same scene. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A God who is a baby. That story demands to be told doesn't make sense. A savior on a cross. That story demands further explanation. You can't just end it there. But in each of these scenes, we see the principal point of these episodes, that God is at work to accomplish his plans in ways that our finite minds would never draw up. God is at work to accomplish his plans in ways that our finite minds would never have drawn up. Imagine, go back with me to your scene in your fifth grade class. You're writing the story, and this time you're writing the story not of some mythical hero, but of the savior of the world, the one who was going to bring God's kingdom. You're never making up this story. Not in a million years are you going to design it this way. And you're certainly not going to design it in such a way that the end, the climax, is going to leave this kind of cliffhanger. Why, why didn't Jesus just come and crush it all? I mean, he could have crushed it all. Broken in, the kingdom would have been here, healed everyone, crushed the Roman government. Why didn't it function that way? I think we're told, we're given a, a picture of this earlier in Mark's gospel. When Jesus told a story about the nature of his kingdom, remember the story of the mustard seed? In Mark 4, verse 30, he said, What can you compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, 
which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, yet when it's sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Try giving that one as a gift Thursday morning. Oh, you got me a mustard seed, right? My kids are going to boo at that gift, right? No one's overjoyed at a mustard seed. But the point that Jesus is making is that from something small and seemingly insignificant will come the kingdom of God. He is the God who makes small things big. A baby in a manger and a savior on a cross. Throughout the biblical story, God has continued to remind his people of this reality. He is at work. He can be trusted. He will accomplish his purposes and plans, but this is not going to happen the way that you think. Travel with me to a couple of places in the scriptures, uh, if you'd like. Uh, the taking of the promised land. The taking of the promised land, the fall of Jericho. Jericho, the verses will be on the screen, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You guys, some of you may remember where we are in the biblical narrative. The people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're just about to take the land that God has promised. And the first city that they're to take is Jericho been waiting for this moment when they would come to claim that which God has promised, and it's been predicated by a lot of wondering, a lot of pain, a lot of strife. And you can imagine, as the people of God muster up the energy to take this land, with the king, and we're told in verse 2, his mighty men of valor, these guys have drawn up some battle plans in their head. Here's how it's going to go down. We're going to take them and we are going to wipe them out. I've been practicing for this for 40 years. God, give me Jericho. Notice God's battle plan for the taking of Jericho. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city at once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. There's not a man in the army that invented that battle plan. Can you imagine going back to the army and communicating the strategy? Hey, boys, God told me we're going to walk around this place for six days. And then, get this, the strategy is a trumpet. And when we blow the horn, we're all going to shout. That's the plan. You're looking at him saying, you have lost your mind. We can wipe them out, and you're appealing to the choir? Right? This is foolish. This is not the plan that you would draw up. But we know 
What does God do? God executes his purposes and plans in spite of the purposes and plans that man would have drawn up. And why? To demonstrate that he actually wins the victory and not them. This is made explicitly clear in another story in Judges 7. I love this scene. This is the story of Gideon's army. In Judges 7, 1, God makes it incredibly explicit, the point that I'm trying to make this morning. In Judges 7, 1, then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And they came to, and the camp of Midian was to the north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So we have the people of God and Midian, these foreign idol-worshiping people, and a battle that's getting ready to play out. And God again draws up his battle plans. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. You ever known an army commander that says that? Boys, we just got too many people. We're going to crush them, right? And put it on the level that many of us know. You ever seen a sports team do this? Boys, we're just too good, all right? Kentucky basketball this year, all right? Boys, it's just ridiculous, really, all right? We've got 29 NBA players, and everybody else is playing with JV boys. Let's just play, yeah, Donnie gives an amen. Let's just play three on five, right? Let's give the other teams a fighting chance. They must score more than seven points at halftime, right? Uh, this is ridiculous. Let's just cut our team in half to give everybody else a fighting chance. This is seemingly what God says. Notice the end of verse 2. Why? Lest Israel, the people of God, boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. And then verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. All right, you've weeded out the chickens. People are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink, and the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. What in the world? This is the strangest battle strategy ever. What is God trying to do? He's trying to do what he's always at work to do to execute human history in such a way that he gets glory and not anybody else. And not anybody else. This is the beautiful thing of this week, right? Consider the third scene, the sending of God's Son. Why would you do it that way? 
Why a baby in a manger? Because Christmas proves that there is nothing you can do to get to God. God loved you so much that he came to you in the form of a baby, laying aside equality with God and taking on the form of a servant. Christmas is God executing his perfect plan in ways that none of your minds would have drawn up. Paul alludes to this reality, referencing the salvation of people. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Praise God, right? According to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That God is at work in all of human history to do things that we would never have imagined or thought. He even does that with his people, the church. Remember the scene in Acts 2, before the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I hear these stories as a kid. I I drew up and imagined this great company of people, this massive army that God would use to take over the world, to spread the message of the gospel. Here we have a fledgling minority people sitting in a house. And the Spirit of God falls on those people, and from this tiny mustard seed, you're here. The church spread in a way that none of us would have ever imagined. This is the beauty and the hope of this week for me. Around every corner of every story is a sovereign God confounding human wisdom by executing his plans and purposes in ways that I and you never would have imagined in order to show off his glory. But you say and I say, what does that have to do with me? Everything. On the surface, if we're honest, our story is quite small and insignificant. Consider with me for a moment. You are one of approximately 7 billion people alive today, living in a normal American city. Your life, like everyone else's, is full of twists and turns, some good, some bad. Most of you work a normal job, you make enough money to get by. You love those that God has put in your life and you attempt to care for others but your life is a blip. You are, according to Scripture, here today and gone tomorrow. Relatively insignificant. And not only that, if you put your little blip, not simply on the timeline of history now, but on the timeline of all human history, that blip gets infinitely smaller. The things that confound your mind, caused you to wrestle in bed last night with anxiety and worry, that propel you into every single day. In the big scheme of things, the reality is very few people care. Very few people care. And if those things work out for what you deem your good, very little about human history is going to change. 
And if those things work out for what you deem as your loss, very little is going to change either. You, like I, will be here for our God-given appointment of time. We will die and be buried, and very few people will remember us. This is the plight of human history. So, is it all meaningless? That doesn't play very well on a Christmas card, right? Vanity of vanities, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, a chasing after the wind, yes, absolutely, if not for a sovereign God. Who is doing what he always does. He is orchestrating all of our stories to focus attention on him. And he is doing it in ways that you and I would have never imagined or drawn up. You ever played the game that I love to play in my mind, if I were God? You ever have those days? Just kind of driving down the road and you turn the radio off or you're laying in bed at night and you're thinking, and you're like, if I were God, here's what I would do. Right? I would mend this relationship, I would grant me this job, I would heal my sick child, I would not have allowed this to happen. My guess is that the story that you are all currently living is not playing out according to the script you would write if you were God. Think back with it, just rewind the tape 20 years. Would you have scripted the life that you're currently living? My guess is not, and that is why Christmas brings such great joy. Christmas proves that you are not God, and that is great news. That is great news. Christmas proves that God executes his plans in ways that you never would have imagined, sovereignly, cosmically, in the sending of his son, and personally in your story. The danger is... The things that he is attempting to use to cause you to bounce your eyes from your infinitely small story to his grand cosmic story, if we're not careful, cause us to hyper-focus on our little story. So the thing, like, think, think, think with me for a second. Like, the fact that you're not in control, <laughs> that health stuff can spring up tomorrow at a doctor's appointment and radically reshape your life. That's got two directions for your eyes. It either bounces your eyes up or down. You either hyper-focus on the infinitely small details of your story and try to get all things in order, figuring out how you can medicate and doctor and do and do and do so as to execute the control that reality you don't have, or you can say, my life is a blip. God is sovereign, and then trust yourself to that sovereign God. The pain that comes into your life, the inability you have to execute control, the things that you don't like about yourself, the fact that you've got some random uncles in your family tree that you're going to gather with this weekend. All of those things that are attempts by God to cause you to bounce your eyes up to his story can actually cause us to hyper-focus on our stories. These are all designed by God to cause you to bounce your eyes up. To remind yourself that you are caught up in a story that you would have never written. 
But this story is, in fact, the true story of the whole world. This week, would you allow Christmas to season your heart with hope that it would remind you of a grand God executing his purposes and would that cause you to relinquish the death grip you have on your story and entrust yourself to a good and sovereign God who's going to do it in spite of you. Let's pray. The band's going to come and, uh, and lead us in, in a couple of minutes, but before they do that, um, before they begin to play, I'm going to give you just a, a couple of minutes in quiet, and I want you to, to attempt as best you can to practice what we've spoken of this morning, which is to entrust yourself to the grand purposes of God. I'm going to guess that you're a lot like me, and that you come in with lives and minds filled with complexity of your story. Things that you don't like, things that are out of control, family that's frustrating, presents to buy, complex things that force us to hyper-focus on our story. But you, to this morning... Confess those to God and to allow Christmas to be a means of preaching the gospel to yourself to remind you that God is at work to bring his kingdom 